All right. Well, it's been a wild couple of weeks. Three weeks ago, we finished up the book of Matthew. We were in it for 78 weeks. Uh, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. It's hard to believe how... Um, even going in, there were certain passages or messages that I was really intimidated by. Uh, even those ones ended up being awesome passages to go through. And I know it's weird to talk about scripture like that, but I don't know, maybe you get into that as a preacher. There are certain passages that you like to preach and are easier and others that are harder. I loved the book of Matthew. It was fantastic. And then two weeks ago, we had uh, a unique message from Acts chapter 2 about God's desire for the Holy Spirit to be in everybody. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That is God's stated desire. I want everybody to be filled with this spirit that I have through salvation, through Jesus Christ. I want to do my work in every human being on earth, all who are far off. And then last week at Easter, we talked about reconciliation, that God wants a reunited relationship with his creation and that he has made that possible through the finished work of Jesus. That's how we get reconciled to God. So for us as a, as a leadership team, as we prepare teaching for, uh, for the church, one of the things that came out of the book of Matthew is a desire uh, to understand more what is the life that Jesus has invited us into. I'm guessing that... Uh, that most of you, when you came to faith in Jesus, when you uh, testified to that faith through baptism, that you didn't consider that to be uh, the high point of your faith journey, and after that, everything was just going to be downhill. You know, it's sort of like we, we get a, a wedding day together. Caleb and Katie just got married last week. You put a lot of work into your wedding day. Yeah, you can give it up for a new marriage. That's fun. <laughs> I'm guessing that it's not just coasting from here on out and that you're not going to put any work into your marriage. This is also marriage advice. Um, <laughs> but that even as much effort is put into the wedding day, the, the journey of being married for like 70 more years takes like way more effort than that. And to invest in that, to sow into that, to discipline yourself, to, uh, to seeking after your spouse and knowing them more and all of that, it's a growing journey to be married to another person. In the same way, I don't think we come into this faith journey thinking, yeah, you know what, I'm just gonna kind of get saved and coast. I'm just gonna kind of deal with that moment of salvation and then I'm just gonna wait for heaven and whatever happens in between, I, I don't... I don't really know. Not that interested in figuring out. I don't really want to uh, even know what God has for that time. But the reality of the scriptures is that uh, they invite us into uh, not just an eternity, but a, a, a life of the fullness of God. And I, I don't want to lead a church that doesn't want to experience that fullness. It doesn't mean that we're not always going, or that we are always going to experience all of what God has all the time. We kind of go through seasons or things that we do, but that's the, the nature of what we're going to press into now is how do we as a church engage the life that Jesus has invited us into so that we can experience more of what he has for us. So we're doing a four-week series called Practicing the Way of Jesus. I'm going to share with you guys why I think this is important for us and how we're going to go about this. Today's an intro. Uh, to, we'll, we'll introduce concepts today. We'll sort of lay the foundations, and then we have three weeks of 
uh, sort of categories of what it means to practice the way of Jesus, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And so we're going to walk through this, and then, to be honest, this is a series that's designed to uh, whet your appetite. I say whet because it's not wet. It's not wet your appetite, like W-E-T. It's W-H-E-T, so whet. <laughs> I want this to get you so hungry for more of what God has for you that it draws you into a lifetime of seeking out the things of Jesus, uh, how the Holy Spirit wants to work in you and through you, what you can do to participate in the life that, that God has for you through Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Like, I, I want this series to press you into more. I don't anticipate that a four-week series will set the course of being a disciple of Jesus for everybody here for the next 80 years. It's going to take work. It's going to take development as it did with the people in the New Testament and as it does with many of us who have experienced Jesus for a long time. So here's the thing. As we go into this, I would love for you to see what you can do to create space for Jesus to take you to the places that he wants to take you. Throughout the Bible, we see language that invites you to participate. Uh, we'll get into this a bit, but to, to make every effort, to put on then. There are things that are on you to do that Jesus uses your effort to then go and do even more of his work in you. And I would like to teach and to bring some of the understanding of what we can do that opens that door for Jesus to do all of the things that he wants to do in us. As we go through this, ultimately the goal is to reshape the idea of discipleship. So one of the challenges in our world is that you could walk into a room full of 100 Christians and you could say the word discipleship and you would probably get about 60 different definitions of what that should look like or what that means. We just tend to vary. We, we grab onto certain elements of the idea of discipleship. For some people, it's more teaching-oriented, that if you get in the right Bible study and kind of do that year after year after year after year, then that is discipleship. You'll grow in maturity because you know the Word better. For other people, it's like an accountability group. If I get into an accountability group and I work on getting rid of the sin in my life with brothers or with sisters in Christ, then I am growing in maturity as a disciple of Jesus. And for others, it's still the idea of mentorship. If I have somebody that's further along in their walk with Jesus than me and they can show me the way to Jesus, then I can kind of walk in that journey and I'm being discipled. We have a lot of different pictures. And to be honest, each one of those has roots in the scriptures. Like they're not unbiblical, they're not bad for us, but we get pretty, um, I don't want to say territorial, but I just did. We get pretty territorial about how we want discipleship to happen. And so what I want to do is I want to lay a, a foundation for us as a church of uh, what do we mean when we say things like disciple or discipleship. We're calling this series Practicing the Way of Jesus specifically because we want to, we want to undo at least one thing about being a disciple. Uh, the early Christians actually referred to being a follower of Jesus as the way. In Acts chapter 9, verse 6, they identified themselves as those belonging to the way. We talk about practicing the way of Jesus because that word practice evokes something. When I say practice, generally speaking, you think of sports, Right? I'm going to practice. We think of sports because we take our kids to practice like 174 times a week. But 
the idea of practice kind of gets built into our lives. We go and prepare for a game by doing uh, repetitive actions over and over and over and over. Andrew's just getting into lacrosse over the last two years, and one of the things that his first coach said is just play wall ball, like four hours a day. Just get out there and just do that, and you will be a good lacrosse player. And I just thought, that sounds actually really good to me right now. That would be really fun to have four hours of just doing this. <laughs> but anyways, uh, it, was, it was just this picture of like repetitive action starts to craft in you the ability to do more. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's practice. We think of practice in other ways. Uh, some people, you might see the bumper sticker, practice random acts of kindness. It doesn't mean think about random acts of kindness. It means do them. It means actually get out there and do those things. The idea of practice for many of us is a putting into action something that is a, a nice thought or a decent thing. If you ever talk to a, a lawyer, they talk about practicing law. It's the idea of taking something uh, that's, that's concrete but in thought and it needs interpre- interpretation and application and, and it needs assistance. So to practice law is not just to know the law but to help people apply the law, to do things according to the law. That's the idea of practicing law. So when we talk about practicing the way of Jesus, what we're talking about is putting into action the things that are true about the way true about being a follower of Jesus, true about being a Christian. And so that's where we're going to start. We're going to start by asking the question, what is a Christian? Because honestly, we talk about the idea of Christianity, and it's pretty, it's pretty muddy what it means to be a Christian. I remember growing up when they did the census in 2000. I was uh, 21 years old in 2000, but whenever the results came out, like a year later, something like 84% of Americans said that they were Christians. Then they did another census. It might have just been a religious one, but in in 08, there was another one, and it was down to like 81%. And then just in 2015, there was another census, and it was, I I believe it's 78% or something along those lines. But the idea being, when Americans think of themselves, they think of themselves as Christians. They self-identify. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And that word can mean anything on a massive spectrum of things to people. It can mean uh, I have a vague idea of who God is and I go to church every once in a while. It can mean something like that. But it can mean all the way to I am a fully devoted, passionate follower of Jesus that is on fire, that loves to worship, that goes on mission trips, that's whatever. It can mean anything in that space. Just by saying the word Christian, our modern understanding is pretty muddy. And so... That muddiness has actually made it somewhat unhelpful for us. I mean, you, you may have been there before. You've talked to somebody and they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. You feel like you still need to dig, right? Like that's not, you, that you haven't found the answer that you're satisfied with. It's like, well, let's find out what you mean when you say Christian. And you may ask things about life in the body, life in the scriptures, life in the spirit. You start to want to know more about what somebody says when they say I'm a Christian. So saying I'm a Christian is not unbiblical. It's just not necessarily the most helpful term in the scriptures. It's only used three times in the whole Bible. And two of those times it was used to describe people that followed Jesus by people that weren't followers of Jesus. So in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says, In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So this community, a new church is being formed, and all of the other people that live there that are watching this are like, 
all right, this group's gotten big enough that they need a name. What should we call them? Let's call them Christians. The word Christians, if you take it straight from the Greek, just means those belonging to Christ or those belonging to the Messiah. It's just descriptive. It's a descriptor of who these people are. So there's nothing holy about the word. It's just describing these disciples that have chosen to follow Jesus. We will call them Christians. But what's happened over the years is we've started to separate the idea of being a disciple from being a Christian. So I mentioned that roughly 80% of people uh, self-identify as Christians. A couple years ago, Gallup put a poll together, and he had his idea of what discipleship looks like as well. But he asked a lot of people, uh, do you participate in discipleship activity? So he asked all people that self-identified as Christians, do you participate in a discipleship activity? Whatever he meant with that, only 20% of the respondents said yes. So of the 80%, so just think 100 now, 100%, only 20% said that they participate in any kind of a discipleship activity, however he would have defined that. So when you think about that, what you, what you can gain from that is a basic understanding that many people that would identify as a follower of Jesus are not putting into practice the ideas of being a disciple of Jesus. So now let's talk about that, what it means to be a disciple. So what we have is, historically, disciple is not a Jesus thing. You can Google disciple, which I did, and the first like four, five, six pages are all Jesus. He totally wins the discipleship contest. Jesus has disciples. They are his now. That's what all of Google says. But he is not the originator of the concept of discipleship or of making disciples or having disciples. It goes all the way back to, to quote Bill and Ted, Socrates. Back in the Greek philosopher days of <laughs> Bill and Ted, come on. <laughs> all right. Um, goes all the way back to the Greek philosophers, and a Greek philosopher would train up a young potential philosopher in his philosophy, and that person was called a disciple, a methetos. Then they had the Jewish rabbis that also started to take on this idea of a school of disciples, and they would gather young men, and they would teach them their way of thinking. Greek philosophy, Jewish rabbinical schools, both of them focused very heavily on ideology. Let me tell you how to think. Let me tell you what to, what to process or what lens to process things through. What Jesus did is he started to redefine the idea of having disciples, and that's what we're going to spend some time looking at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 16. We're right back in Matthew. We think we're done. We're not done. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Jesus says, or then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus basically lays out for his disciples, if you want to come after me, one of the things that's going to happen is you need to die first. You need to take up your cross. See, we think of that, and the cross is so wonderful. We sing about it. We dwell on it. We love the cross because of what it represents. 
But Jesus said this before he ever went to the cross. Jesus was saying to these people that wanted to come after him, wanted to follow him, is unless you are willing to take up this thing that the Romans used to kill people, unless you are willing to die and come and follow me, then you have no part in being with me. If you lose your life for my sake, you are going to gain true life. See, Jesus, when he invited his disciples into something, he was not simply inviting them into an ideology. He was inviting them to change their entire way of life. Jesus was calling on them to change how they lived, who they are, how they speak, why they exist, what they believe, all of it. It was a whole life idea. This is why when we get baptized, we go down into the water. We are dying with Jesus. We are being buried with Jesus underwater, and when we come out, we are being raised to walk in the newness of life. That is the significance of baptism right there. The way that Paul articulates this to the Galatians in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is saying, I understand what Jesus was calling a disciple to. It's to go and die. And so when Jesus was crucified on the cross, I was too. And so he also says things like, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. When you came to faith in Jesus, you died to your former self, your former way of life, and now you're being raised up to walk as an entirely new creation. Your old purposes, your old ways of thinking, your old habits and patterns, those things are supposed to be gone and new things are supposed to replace them. Now, you might be thinking, how does all that happen at baptism? That's crazy. It doesn't all happen at baptism. In fact, we see in the disciples in the early days a great moment where Jesus goes to uh, Peter and Andrew. This is before they were called disciples. And he goes to them and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is two brothers. They're working their dad's business and they're just sitting there mending nets, doing their thing. And Jesus comes to them and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And as soon as they stand up and start walking, they are called disciples. But what we also see is that those guys that happened in that day, in that moment, they learned a lot over the course of not just three years, but many years. Those guys were equipped to become later the guys that would preach at Pentecost, the guys that would go in Acts chapter 4 and say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The guys that in Acts chapter 15 would take a massive theological issue and weigh it in the Holy Spirit and take it to the church and say, we believe that the Spirit of God is directing us to go this way. These are the same guys, but it took time and intentionality and energy for them to grow as disciples of Jesus. So they are disciples, and they are growing as disciples. And what I want to challenge us to think about is when we say, I'm a Christian, we should not separate out that idea from being a disciple of Jesus. It is one and the same. You are called a Christian because you belong to Jesus, but to belong to Jesus is to be one of his disciples. This is important because you shouldn't separate out in your mind the things that I'm saying from the life that you're called into. One of our current issues is the separation of being a Christian and being a disciple. We say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple. I'm not ready for that yet. I don't, 
uh, I don't know how to do that, or I don't really think I'm going to grow in that area, or that's, that's for people that are really into this thing, and I'm not really, really into this thing just yet. But there's no category for that in the scriptures. You're a disciple of Jesus, and then you grow in increasing measure to become more and more like Jesus. Now, I want to talk about how that disciple-making happens. I mentioned that Jesus told Peter and Andrew to get up and follow him, and they did. They stood up in that day, and they started walking with Jesus. They left their families at home. They left their business. They physically started walking with Jesus. And for many of us, we think of that as being a disciple, physically walking with Jesus. Therefore, we can't be disciples like those guys were disciples anymore because Jesus isn't walking around like he was. There's an author named Dallas Willard, which we'll probably reference him a number of times over the course of this series because he's really helpful in this arena. He writes this. He says, We cannot literally be with him in the same way as his first disciples could, but the priorities and intentions, the heart or inner attitudes of disciples are forever the same. In the heart of a disciple, there is a desire and there is decision or settled intent having come to some understanding of what it means and thus having counted up the costs, the disciple of Christ desires above all else to be like him. The disciple is one who, intent upon becoming Christ-like and so dwelling in his faith and practice, systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs to that end. By these actions, even today, one enrolls in Christ's training, becomes his pupil or disciple, there is no other way. This is incredibly helpful for us to think about because we should not separate out a disciple as a first century Jewish person that started to follow Jesus around and do the things that Jesus did. Jesus told those people to go and make disciples and that command still stands today. And so for us, we do have to contextualize it. We are not first century Jewish fishermen. Is that universal or are we all, we're all good on that? We occupy different careers. We have different backgrounds. We have different contexts. What does it look like for a single mom to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it look like for a high-powered executive to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it look like for a pro athlete to be a disciple of Jesus? These are all things that we have to wrestle with. But guess what? Those things were not that prevalent back in the first century. They just weren't as common and so there is a distinction. But what Dallas is saying and what I think is really helpful is there are things that we can look at about Jesus' making of disciples that are really helpful for us to start to frame what does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus, to practice the way, what can I do to be a disciple of Jesus? So let's talk about this a little bit. There are a few things that Jesus did to make his disciples. Number one is he taught them. Jesus taught frequently. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, he was constantly teaching people about the kingdom of God, and the disciples were there for every single one of those teachings. Now, they might have been sitting in this corner while Jesus was teaching the crowds, and they're just sitting there listening, and oftentimes they had questions afterwards, and they got to ask them. They actually got the teaching, and then they got the after teaching, which was like, the, okay, so Jesus, you said this. What did you mean? How did this go? What did that parable mean? And Jesus would tell them, well, this isn't for them to know, but it is for you to know. And so the disciples would learn what is the kingdom of God? 
Who is Jesus? What are the Old Testament scriptures? What is he doing right now? What is he calling us into? How does this fit into God's big story? They were learning all of those things through Jesus' teaching. That's one element of discipleship is that Jesus taught them. Uh, Jesus also used them as basically the modern day equivalent would be an intern. How many of you have been an intern before? Anybody ever been an intern? All right, I've been an intern. It's a humbling experience, right? So Jesus says, hey, uh, go ahead and grab a donkey from that town. I have use of it. And if the owner stops you, just tell him the Lord has need of it and he'll let you go. And they said, okay. And they went and got him a donkey. There were other times where Jesus said, I need you to go ahead and I need you to set up the Passover meal. It's kind of tedious to set up a Passover meal, but Jesus had other things to do, so he sent the guys out to do the work. There were times where the guys just did things that Jesus needed done. There were other times that they actually got to participate in what Jesus was doing. I want you to picture a crowd. When it says that Jesus fed 5,000, we talked about this going through Matthew, uh, that's 5,000 men. That was how they counted. And so you can anticipate that the crowd size was between 10 and 15,000. Even if it was just five, it's still a lot. And Jesus said, well, we should feed them because they're kind of out on like a wilderness hill. And they're like, how are we going to feed this many people? And the kid brings up his lunch and says, here, I've got some fish and some bread. And Jesus says, that'll do. And he takes it and he blesses it. And then he hands it to his disciples. And they take a small piece of bread and a small piece of fish and they start walking through a crowd of thousands, giving out food for everybody to eat. Now, what the, what the text doesn't say, but what you have to imagine is that as they were breaking it off, that food was multiplying in their hands. Jesus gave them something to do, and they got to watch this miracle go out of their hands to where they fed thousands of people and then there were baskets left over at the end of it. Jesus didn't just teach them. He didn't just tell them what to do. He also let them participate in it and experience it for themselves. In addition to what Jesus taught and the things that they caught just by being around him, I remember... Uh, uh, Kristen and I moved out to Chicago to do a leadership residency. Uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. But we got there, and they basically said, uh, we don't really have a lot to tell you about what to do. This is kind of, you initiate. You craft for yourself a quality leadership residency, and you have access to us, whatever you need. Ask a thousand questions, whatever. We'll be here, but you have to make it for yourself. Well, I'm the kind of person that I went to every meeting I could get to. I grabbed lunch with every person I could grab lunch with. I asked a thousand questions. I took journals full of notes. Like, I went after it. I tried to learn a lot of stuff. There was a lot that I just caught by being around these guys, watching them lead a church that planted 200-plus churches over the course of 10 years. I wanted to learn, so I watched, and I listened, and I absorbed, and I took in, and the disciples got a chance to do that. They caught so much of what Jesus was doing. We know this because there are things that they do where he never explicitly said it, but it's part of how he lived, that they just took that and brought that into their new way of life. But in addition to what Jesus taught and what they caught from Jesus doing things, we also see him specifically give them opportunities to try what he was going to be calling them into later. So Jesus made disciples by actually giving them opportunities. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Matthew 10, 1 says this, And he called to him his 12 disciples 
and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. If you remember when we went through Matthew, this is essentially like a short-term mission trip. Jesus takes his disciples and he says, you're going to go out to all the same villages that we just went through where I cast out demons and I healed every disease and now you are going to have authority to go and do the same thing in those same villages. That's what Jesus told these guys. So they go out and they start ministering in all of these villages that they had already been in. Everybody had already seen Jesus do it, and maybe they were disappointed when the disciples showed up because it wasn't Jesus, but they start casting out demons. They start healing in Jesus' name. It's an incredible moment for them where Jesus has given them authority and said, I want you to do the things that I was just doing. So for him to make a disciple, part of that was actually calling them into this way of life that he had been living and breathing and doing and saying, I want you to go and do the same. You have authority to do that. Now that word authority became a theme in the book of Matthew. We saw it again in the Great Commission where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Go and do this thing that I have done with you. I want you to take that on and I want you to go and do the same thing. So let's talk for a moment about what our part is in being a disciple of Jesus. So if you are uh, a Christian, that means you're a disciple. If you're a disciple, that means that you are in heart and intent stepping into a life of obedience and imitation of Jesus, that you are going to learn and grow to become more and more like Jesus over the course of your life. The New Testament calls it becoming Christ-like, that you are being formed into his image. So in theory, let's just talk about it this way. There's a trajectory for all believers to become more and more like Jesus over the course of your physical human life. There is something that Jesus wants to accomplish in you. There's a reason that we're not just scooped up into heaven the moment that we get saved and eternity begins, heaven, glory, all of that. There's something that Jesus wants to do in us here and now. There's a life that he wants us to live to see our, our old flesh, our old lives be made new and to be reconciled to the Father and to live the life that was intended for us, this life of the kingdom of God, Jesus wants us to experience that here and now. It testifies to the power and the truth of the gospel. It's a, a life of abundance and fullness that is promised of us. He wants us to experience that now. That's the life of a disciple is growing to experience in greater and greater measure the fullness of God. What Paul prays for the Ephesians. The joy of the Lord. Peter calls it joy inexpressible. A joy that just wells up inside of you that you don't have the ability to explain its source. The peace that surpasses all understanding. God wants you to experience these things here and now in the face of darkness, in the face of evil, in the face of a corrupt and fallen world. He wants you to see the power and the glory of heaven in your life now. 
That is the desire of God. That's why you're not taken away immediately is because he actually wants to bring his work into your life now. So what's your part in this? Jesus went to Peter and Andrew, Matthew 4.10, and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The guys didn't look at Jesus and be like, wow, yeah, and then go back to mending their nets. They stood up and they started following Jesus. There was a physical change in their demeanor, a physical change in the way that they lived their life, in how they went about the business of being human. They decided when they said yes to following Jesus that they were going to alter their human existence to pattern it after the person of Jesus. And that's why what, what Dallas was saying is so helpful. He says, uh, the disciple is one who intends upon becoming Christ-like and so dwelling in his faith and practice systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs to that end. We change our lives to reflect being a disciple of Jesus. That's, that's our part so this series, what we're going to be doing, uh, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, each one of those messages for the next three weeks is going to talk about how we rearrange our lives to pattern ourselves as disciples of Jesus. What are the things that we can do in our lives that open up the opportunity for Jesus to do his work in us? Now here's what I want to make sure that you understand. We're not talking about earning our salvation. We don't do these things so that Jesus will bless us with salvation. This isn't uh, for that purpose, but it is from our salvation that we do these things to grow in Christ-likeness. And one of the things that's really helpful when you, when you realize it is that if salvation is the beginning of the story and not just the destination... And it really opens the door for you to live a life pursuing Jesus Christ for the rest of your physical life and on into eternity. When Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 1, he says that you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then that's chapter 1. He goes on to write three and a half more chapters about the joy and the power and the glory of living in that kingdom. And so for us, to view salvation as a destination actually cuts short what God wants to do in our lives, but to view that as a beginning, a new life, a new way, there is so much for him to do in us as we go on from there. In John chapter 15, verses 7 through 10, Jesus says this. And I'm, I'm saying this verse, this is our primary text for next week, so uh, just know that I'll dig into this a ton more next Sunday. It says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. The starting point of being a disciple of Jesus is obeying him. Matthew 28, 19 says that making a disciple equals baptizing them and teaching them to obey. A huge part of our lives, when we say yes to following Jesus, is beginning a journey of learning how to obey Jesus in increasing measure. Uh, we sang a song before I got up here that says, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. 
Now, it's a great song. I love it. I love singing it. But it also makes me laugh sometimes to think about the opposite of that. Holy Spirit, you are not welcome here. Like that just would be pretty uh, rough if anybody said that. But here's the thing. Some of us live our lives in a way that we do not want the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We do not want the Holy Spirit to come in and truly do the work that he wants to do in us. And so even if we're, we would never say, Holy Spirit, you are not welcome here, but many of us live a life that says, Holy Spirit, you are not welcome here. To sing a song like that is to say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome to invade my life, to make me uncomfortable, to convict me of sin, to illuminate scripture in my mind, to draw me deeper into this story, to open up doors of ministry, to show me where you want me to go. What we're saying is I am submitting myself to following and living by the Holy Spirit. That's obedience. For a lot of us, it's tough to step into a life of obedience because there is a, there's a pride issue. To obey someone means that you're in submission to them. It means that they have authority over you. It means that when they speak, you have to listen. And there are people that genuinely struggle with this, even in this room. We want to be in control. And the life of a disciple is the life of a person that is continually submitting control of your life and its outcomes to the Spirit of God. And for a lot of people, that is a really hard thing to do. I love, uh, I just prayed this over a guy that um, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline that there's a, uh, a spirit in us through Jesus that is full of courage, that's full of power, that is full of love and full of self-discipline to carry out the life of Christ. It is the courageous life to submit yourself to the spirit of God. It is the cowardly life to try and maintain control over the outcomes of your life and over the circumstances of your life. I know it may not seem that way. It may seem the opposite way to you. But to choose voluntarily to say, Lord, I'm yours. I will follow you. When you speak, I will listen. When you say jump, I'll say how high. Actually, no, I won't question you. I'll just jump. I don't know. <laughs> we are saying, Jesus, I am yours. I am taking up my cross. I'm dying, and I'm following you. I'm being crucified with Christ, and I don't live anymore. The life I live now, I live in the flesh. I, I live in the by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, I am trusting you to lead me. So let's talk about one avenue of difficulty that, that can exist for some people, and that's the idea of effort. What does it mean for us to work hard as followers of Jesus? You may have grown up in a, in a setting where legalism was either the, the culture or the enemy. And so in either of those, sometimes you swing out of uh, legalism being the, uh, legalism means that if you just do enough things, then God will love you. That's the basic core of legalism is that God has given us a new law in the New Testament, and if you just obey all the laws, then that's when he loves you and gives you blessing and grace and all of that kind of thing. 
That's the idea of legalism. You may have grown up in a church setting like that. It creeps its way into a lot of church settings. It has crept its way into my own life many, many times over the course of my Christian journey. And so for some of us, the the pendulum swing is to say, we can't do anything to please God. It is all grace, all grace. And I can do nothing but experience the grace of God and enjoy it. And let me just kind of talk about uh, how this works together, how the grace of God brings in the effort of a disciple and gives us, through the grace of God, the opportunity to work hard as followers of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, which 2, 8, and 9 is usually what we memorize and what we speak to, and they're great verses, but verse 10 is in the same paragraph. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's the passage that we love and we memorize and it's so important to us. God's grace saved me. I couldn't save myself and I I didn't do it so I can't boast about it. But verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That same guy, Dallas Willard, is famous for, quoting, uh, for this quote. He says, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. You can't earn your salvation. It's not possible. It's by grace that you've been saved. But effort is something that is spoken to a number of times in the scriptures. Peter writes about it in 2 Peter 1.5. He tells us that we should make every effort to supplement our faith with knowledge and our knowledge with virtue and our virtue with self-control and on and on and on. That there is a, an effort, a life of diligence to being a follower of Jesus, of hard work, of life-altering. Paul writes it this way to the Colossians in uh, chapter 3. Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Awesome passage. Built into that is your effort and your identity in Christ. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved already holy and beloved before you ever even put on then, but still put on then these character qualities of Jesus. Just like you get up and get dressed every morning, wake up and put on Christ and his character and his decision-making and his attitudes and his compassion and his love. Put it on like you put on your T-shirt, but you need to do it. And this is where we run into um, just a, uh, maybe a brief aside on some of the struggle with the definition of discipleship. And this is why I, I started here. One of the struggles that we run into, and as a pastor, I get this, a, a number of people, and I realize there is so much nuance and so many layers to this, but many people will come to the church and say, I left my old church because I wasn't being fed, or I left my old church because I wasn't being discipled. And I will first acknowledge that there is absolutely an importance for people to be involved in discipling you because we're commanded of it. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So there's a job that should be done. And the idea of being fed, I get that as well, that you're, you're a sheep, you're a part of a flock, and the shepherds are supposed to lead you to the, to the pastures and to the, the water and to, to feed you, to be involved in that process. 
100%, I totally see that. But let me just try and reshape a couple of thoughts in you about the idea of being fed and being discipled. First of all, many, many, many places in the scriptures, you are commanded to meditate on the word of God day and night. So if you are wholly dependent on whatever preaching comes from the stage as the food that you are uh, being grown on, then that is a misapplication of, of what I do on any given Sunday morning or what anybody that would be up here preaching would do. So it's really important to understand that you have been called and, and, and destined with the word of God being on your lips, being in your mind, saturating your life with God's word. Absolutely, you need that. Now, I could spend an hour talking about my convictions of how I preach and why I preach the way I do and, and what I believe my role is in. And if you come to Intro to Membership, we hit on all that stuff. It's really good. Uh, next one's in September. Just kidding. Um, but it's, there's great value in understanding what this dynamic is, but you need to understand that you have responsibility. And when it comes to being discipled, I realize that everybody has a picture in their minds of what their expectations are of being discipled. And for most people that come to me and say, nobody discipled me, they mean that nobody took me under their wing and mentored me and taught me how to uh, follow Jesus, how to pray, how to read the scriptures, how to be a businessman, how to uh, love my wife, how to raise my kids, or anything along those lines. Nobody taught me how to do those things. And I, I get it. I think, I, I think I understand where you're coming from with that, but I just want to speak to the idea of you being discipled. Part of me even standing here right now is you being discipled. That's part. That's got to be in your, in your framework that is part of the discipleship of being a follower of Jesus. Another part is that you would put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and blameless, compassionate hearts. That commandment is given to you, not to me. To put, I can't put a compassionate heart on you. You have to put on a compassionate heart. We think there's a, <laughs> I, uh, we, we'd cue these messages. I preached these on a Thursday night, and I, I said this, and then my dad actually brought uh, great wisdom. Uh, we have a generation right now, the millennials, generally, that are struggling to grow up, struggling to mature, struggling to find adulthood. And I said that, and then my dad was like, oh, yeah, we had that in the 60s, too. That was totally our generation. And I was like, all right, yeah, that's good. That's good. It's helpful not to just, you know, heap blame on millennials. I, I don't want to be that guy. The Gen Xers will future be known as the greatest generation. We're all set. Like, we had <laughs> driven. We're, we're in great shape. Um, but part of the problem is our belief about how maturity should happen. That that maturity is something that is done to you or handed to you. And the reality of being a disciple of Jesus and growing in maturity is, yeah, people will contribute to that and participate in that, stir one another up to love and good works, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another. There's so much community in that, but also make every effort. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and blameless, compassionate hearts. Do it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us cast off the weights and the sin which so easily entangle us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Who is that written to? You. I can't take those weights off of you. 
I cannot come into your life and remove the sin from your life so that you can run a little bit easier. That's not my job. That's not anybody's job except your own. Through the Spirit of God, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, get rid of the weights and the sins which so easily entangle us. Now, I am all about an accountability group. I think they're incredibly valuable. As iron sharpens iron, where, you know, the cord of three strands is not easily broken. I love those things, but they cannot be the answer. You have to participate. You have to. So if anything, this message is a call on you to join in the effort of you being a disciple of Jesus and don't wait for it to happen to you. One of the things that we're going to find over the course of this series is that you have everything pertaining to life and godliness. We're not waiting for a magical answer for maturing in Jesus. You have it. What we do want to do is teach you how to apply it. It would be one thing for me to preach this message, and honestly, if you came up to me right afterwards and said, how do I do that? That's exactly what I want in my life. How do I do that? If I don't have an answer to that question, that's bad on me. Like, that's, a, that's terrible preaching. If I set the bar really high and just cast vision for the destination, we're all going to go here, and you're like, all right, yeah, how do we get there? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't work very well. So part of our goal is to equip the saints to train us up as people of the word that, that know how to engage the life that Jesus has brought us into. And there are j- real, tangible answers in the scriptures. They're not crazy, mystical, out there. You've never heard of them. I have the secret. No, these are in the word of God, easy to access, but they just need to be applied to our lives with diligence and faithfulness. So my hope for today is to simply set the table, and like I said, whet your appetite for this life that Jesus has called us into and I, I, I told the 9 a.m. this, and I'll tell you guys this. This isn't so that we can have a packed out room. I'm just genuinely telling you, these messages build on each other. You should be here the next three weeks. And if you're not here, you should get the podcast because if you do this week and then you show up on week three or week four and you didn't do any, anything or listen to anything, they build off of each other and they're designed to be a package. They, you, I'll, that, I'll just leave it at that. This could have been like a nine-hour all-day Saturday seminar, and it's not, so... I just want to challenge you and encourage you to to join into this effort. I believe it will be worth your time. I know this sounds a little bit, uh, it's a little funky to say this, but I'm going to go for it because there's something powerful in um, participating even, even this afternoon, today. I want to invite you that if this is the life that you want, to not simply be a Christian, as is described by our culture, but to engage the life of a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to ask you in just a minute to actually stand up and identify that, to profess that, even through your bodily action of standing up. I'm going to pray over you, and we're going to go into worship, and we're going to have some time for this. Or Actually, I'm going to have you guys pray over each other. But the reason that I'm doing this I believe that everybody that's a follower of Jesus should should stand up in that moment. 
even if you are a 27-year veteran of following, following Jesus and being a disciple, I think that there's still more. And I want you to want more. Does that make sense? Yeah. I love that. <laughs> and so in, in doing this, this is a call we, we talk about as Anthem. We talk about helping people find their way back to God. Our dream is that in a message like this, it's not for people that don't know Jesus to get to know Jesus or people that uh, know Jesus but don't do anything to take one more step. This is for everybody everywhere to say, yes, I want, I want the more. I want to keep being filled up with all the fullness. I want to keep finding more of what Jesus has for me in this life. So Erica, if you guys would start coming up, and if that's you, and if you want to press into the more of what Jesus has to offer. Would you stand up? And I'll give you your instructions. So you have in you right now the Spirit of God. As a follower of Jesus, he has given you his Holy Spirit. And I believe that the Holy Spirit has something to pray over and speak to the people around you. And so what I'm going to ask is we're just going to give you a minute. And you are going to take a moment and you are going to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit for the person next to you. And they're going to pray for you and you're going to switch. And, and it's, it's all going to go up at the same time. You don't have to hear. It doesn't need to be polite Christian prayer. Where we just kind of, and this is, we're just going to pray for each other that this idea of being a disciple of Jesus would catch our hearts and captivate us today. And I want you, even if you have to take a minute and just wait for the Spirit to speak, to give you a word for say, even if you don't know the person, just, just pray for them what God puts on your heart. Do you believe you can do that? That was a very weak nod. <laughs> I am not convinced that you believe that you can do that. Part of this is putting into practice the power of the Spirit of God in us. Do you believe you can do that? Amen. Okay. So take a minute and start praying for each other. Mm.